Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Welcome to the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. Um, we're here to talk today about sugar, salt, and supplements, and we're here to sort the science. Uh, I'm Amanda Chan. I'm the senior health news editor at the Huffington Post, um, and this event is a collaboration with the Huffington Post. Um, the Forum is a live webcasting series about health policy, um, and it's at Harvard School of Public Health, which is celebrating its centennial. Um, we're going to be live tweeting this, so if you're on Twitter, it's at ForumHSPH, and you can also email questions to theforum at hsph.harvard.edu. Um, I want to introduce our panelists. So we have Dr. Frank Hu, who is the Professor of Nutrition and Epidemiology at Harvard. Um, Dr. Daryush Motafarian, um, Associate Professor uh, in the Department of Epidemiology at Harvard. And Dr. Joanne Manson, who is the study director of the Vitamin and Omega-3 trial um, and the chief of the Division of Preventive Medicine at Brigham and Women's. So we'll be talking today for an hour and uh, we'll take questions at the end. Um, we're gonna start off uh, the session with a video clip about sugar. Um, and this video is from HuffPost's Unreal Eats um, series. And it's a lighthearted video, but it's about a serious topic. So um, let's get started. Okay, so uh, obviously this is about sugar, so we're gonna start off on sugar. Um, the World Health Organization recently proposed guidelines that say less than 5% of our daily calories should be coming from sugar. Uh, right now, the guidelines say 10%. So Frank, I wanted to start with you. Um, what would 5% of our daily calories even look like if it came from sugar? After watching this video, I saw that you are going to ask me whether I'm going to choose the cookies or the, the juices. <laughs> but I will come back to the uh, WHO uh, guideline uh, in, in a couple of minutes. Uh, so it's interesting to mm -hmm. see how much sugar in, in our diet, in cookies, in soft drinks, in, in, in juices. Mm -hmm. And it looks like uh, the cookies contain uh, less sugars than the beverages, mm -hmm. but um, those kind of cookies are not necessarily healthy food because they also contain a lot of refined starch and perhaps butter. So um, uh, you can actually make a much healthier cookies by using whole grains and vegetable oils, a little bit of sugar. Um, so uh, of course, uh, we're not uh, doing a cook cookie contest <laughs> here. Uh, but um, I think my point is that um, um, sugars are hidden uh, in, um, in numerous foods and beverages in, in the ubiquitous in, in our food supplies. So I just want to address three questions very uh, briefly. One is how sweet is American diet? Mm -hmm. And the second question is what are the bitter consequences of uh, eating too much sugar? 
And uh, the third question is what are we going to do, uh, what are we going to do uh, with, uh, about this uh, public health problem? So uh, the first question, how sweet is American diet? The simple answer is it's too sweet. So on average, Americans consume um, about 15% calories from added sugars. 15%? 15% calories, which is equivalent to 22 teaspoons of sugar. 22 wow. teaspoons of sugar, that's, that's really a lot. And those are the added, uh, the sugars added to, to our foods uh, during processing. Uh, uh, this doesn't Im uh, include natural uh, occurring sugars in fruits and vegetables and, and milk. And uh, you can find sugar everywhere. Um, for example, um, one can of soda contains about 10 teaspoons 10 teaspoon of sugar and 150 calories. Uh, a small cup of uh, yogurt contains five or six teaspoons of sugar. And uh, you may be uh, surprised to know that even uh, a, a tablespoon of ketchup contains about one teaspoon of sugar. So uh, there is no question that um, we consume too much sugar in our diet. So the question is, what are the health consequences? Uh, I think the science is very clear uh, that uh, added sugars do carry uh, a lot of added health risks. And uh, many studies have shown that added sugars uh, associated with increased risk of um, uh, diabetes, um, hypertension, um, and even uh, heart disease. So uh, those sugars not only bad for your teeth, but also bad for your weight and for your heart. And in a recent study we published uh, together with colleagues from uh, the CDC, uh, we found that people who consume more than 10% of calories from added sugar had 40% increased risk of dying from heart disease. And those who consume 25% calories uh, from added sugar had two and a half, a half fold increased risk of dying from heart disease. So the increased risk is, uh, is not trivial, it's, it's substantial. And in our previous analysis, um, sugar-sweetened beverages uh, associated with increased risk of obesity and type 2 diabetes, just one can of soda is associated with 25% 20 increased risk of uh, developing type 2 diabetes. So uh, the last question is, uh, I, I'm going to briefly touch upon this because we'll, we'll have more time to discuss uh, the solutions. What can we do uh, about this uh, major public health problem? Uh, it's not easy to kick the uh, sugar habits because we all love um, sweet <laughs> foods. And, um, uh, and the added sugars uh, are ubiquitous in our food supply, as I mentioned earlier. So we really need uh, government regulations and also voluntary involuntary uh, actions from the food industry uh, to reduce the amount of added sugars in, in our foods. And as you just mentioned, the WHO has been recommending more than, no more than 10% of calories from added sugar uh, in our diet. Uh, but recently they uh, proposed uh, a lower threshold, uh, uh, a lower, uh, lower uh, goal for reducing uh, sugars, uh, added sugar to no more, no more than 5% of uh, calories uh, from, um, uh, uh, in a, uh, from added sugar in our diet. So this is equivalent to like, uh, eight to nine teaspoons of sugar. So uh, that a yogurt, or uh, two yogurts. Yeah, well, <laughs> less than two yogurts. Less than no, two more yogurts. Than, <laughs> no more than the amount of sugar in the 12-ounce in the, uh, can of soda. So it's relatively small. I think this is, in short term, this is a very ambitious and mm -hmm. very challenging goal because we are consuming 15% uh, of calories. Already, if you're drinking a can of soda, that's it. Like right, that, yeah, that so would be done already for but, the day. But the mm -hmm. long term, I, I think, is, uh, is a good goal mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's an achievable goal, but it will take uh, a lot of efforts, uh, not only from individuals, but also from government regulations and actions from, from the food industry. Uh, and reducing uh, added sugar, especially sugar sweetened beverages, I think is a very important step uh -huh. in improving our over overall quality of diet. And even though um, cutting back on sugar is not going to solve the obesity problem, I think uh, it is going to uh, have major uh, impact on uh, the diet quality and the overall obesity problem. Okay, um, you mentioned earlier added sugars. Uh, mm -hmm. You made sure to specify added sugars. Um, does our body treat added sugars differently than like fructose or something that's well, naturally in a food? Uh, yes, uh, so um, most of the sugar we consume come from added sugars uh, in beverages. Actually, beverages contribute to uh, uh, about 50% of added sugars in, in our diet. 
and then uh, the added sugars uh, um, basically in almost all the foods we, we, we consume. And uh, the natural sugars, natural occurring sugars in, in fruits and vegetables, for example in fruits, uh, it contains a uh, relatively um, large amount of fruc uh, fructose, mm -hmm. uh, but the digestion, absorption of um, um, fructose in whole fruit is very different from um, digestion, absorption, and metabolism of uh, added sugars in, in our beverages, uh, for example. And um, the digestion of uh, fructose in whole fruit is much slower and doesn't cause um, rapid rise in mm -hmm. uh, blood sugar or, or blood insulin. In fact, in our recent uh, study, we found that consuming whole fruits mm -hmm. uh, is actually associated with uh, reduced risk of diabetes, while drinking um, fruit juices uh, some of the juices are so-called 100% fruit juices. The juice it's, in the video. Yeah, <laughs> it's associated with increased risk of diabetes. Uh -huh. So we really need to distinguish uh, the uh, sugars in uh, whole fruits and uh, the sugars that added to our food supplies. Um, so okay, and actually on that note, I was wondering if um, you all could elaborate on how sugar is disguising itself in common foods, like refined grains, for instance. People don't realize, I think, that it turns into sugar in your body, so. Um. Yeah, I think that that actually for me is one of the key issues that I think a sugar guideline alone actually could be misleading and lead to uh, paradoxic or even unhealthy decisions. And so I think that sugars are clearly, you know, not healthy when they're rapidly digested. Um, you know, naturally occurring sugars in fruit are very slowly digested, so that's not a, a major issue. But, but uh, the, the challenge is that there's really metabolically a little to no difference between eating a bowl of table sugar or a bowl of Skittles and a bagel and a, a bowl of you know Special K or other refined I breakfast think people cereals. don't realize yeah. that. And, and, and it's not the same in <laughs> most people's minds. Yeah, and, and I think the WHO guidelines and the American Heart Association guidelines also don't recognize that. So mm -hmm. I think that that's the danger of focusing on sugars alone, not that sugars uh, aren't harmful, is that if you look at products, actual products, you know, there's many products that are whole grain, they have nuts, they have know, lots of healthy things in them, they have a little bit of added sugars. Mm -hmm. And then there's many products that have no added sugars, but they're all refined carbohydrates or starches. And so the problem is if we just focus on sugars, you know, then these products that have a little bit of added sugars, but are otherwise actually pretty good choices, will be viewed as worse choices than, than total refined carbohydrates. And, you know, Frank mentioned that added sugars are about 15% of calories. Well, refined grains and, car and, and starches and sugars together are almost half of calories. So, mm -hmm. So 50% of our calories are coming from these poor quality carbohydrates. And, and the reason they're, they're very similar is, as you mentioned, if you eat a bagel mm -hmm. or eat a piece of white bread or white rice or um, you know, most breakfast cereals, in the mouth, immediately, you, know, you start getting digestion. And, and you know, what we uh, learn were complex carbohydrates are just long chains of glucose. So they start breaking into glucose immediately in the mouth. And by the time they get to the stomach, you know, they're rapidly digested and you get identical spikes in, in blood sugar. So, so really not being facetious, most breakfast cereals are like eating a bowl of table sugar. Wow. Um, and, so, and so I think that actually, you know, we should be reducing added sugars in the food supply. But I think the guideline and the reduction should be completely combined with the amount of overall refined carbohydrates in a food. Because as I said, you know, Mary Poppins said a little bit of, you know, sugar helps the medicine go down. Mm -hmm. You know, there's lots of good healthy whole grain products or nut products that have a little bit of added sugars. And there's lots of highly refined grain products that have no added sugars. So if we just use sugars, we could get misled. Um, and so, you know, there are some obvious things like sugar-sweetened beverages. You know, there's no redeeming quality to sugar-sweetened beverages and those should be reduced. But there's a lot of other products that are kind of in this mix. And so, and mm -hmm. so I actually worry that um, we're, you know, this isn't as bad as the low-fat craze where there was really no good data. Obviously, <laughs> sugars are harmful, but the low-fat craze had unintended consequences. And so I think people should think about their overall carbohydrate quality and try to reduce all what I would call low-quality carbohydrates, which is refined grains, starches like potatoes, and, and sugars. Well, on that note, too, um, there was a recent report showing that bread is actually the top source of sodium in our diets um, and not things like potato chips, which is what most people would think. Um, so. I was wondering if you could explain how much salt Americans typically consume and how much we should be consuming. And obviously cutting back on bread <laughs> is a good way to, to do that, but. Yeah, so, um, so sodium is, a, is really a global problem. And um, you know, Americans consume way too much salt um, about, in terms of sodium, you know, almost four grams per day of sodium. And while it's a little bit controversial what the ideal should be, 
nobody disagrees it should be much lower than four <laughs> grams. And so, uh -huh. you know, some people say it should be one and a half grams. Some people should say it should be two grams. That's pretty much the argument. Should it be one and a half? Should it be two? Mm -hmm. um, or the current U.S. dietary guidelines, 2.3 grams for, for, for many people. So whether it should be 1.5 or 2 or 2.3, that's all sort of theoretical because we're way, way above that. What would and, that uh, look like? Like, realistically, yeah. would that be like a bagel and that's it? Like, what, in real life, what would that look like? Well, so, you know, the sodium comes from all you know, processed and pre-prepared food sources and restaurant mm -hmm. food sources. And so we're really getting sodium ubiquitously in the diet. As you said, the number one source is bread. The mm -hmm. number two source in the U.S. is actually chicken. Um, wow. You know, chicken that you buy that's pre-prepared because companies inject it with sodium so that it stays juicy and, and tastes really good. And so things that actually taste salty, like nuts or potato chips, actually have relatively low amounts of sodium. You know, mostly what sodium is used for in the food supply is for uh, preservation, so that mm -hmm. you can buy bread and you can buy it, for, and it can sit for two weeks on your counter, right, without going bad. If you make mm -hmm. your own bread or if you get bread at a farmer's market, you know, it'll get hard and go bad very quickly. And then also to hide tastes, and so these Lunchables and these other food items where the meat has been pre-cooked and then, and then you have to reheat it. Mm -hmm. Reheated meat does not taste very good, and so <laughs> the sodium is to hide, to hide the taste. And so it's used for hiding tastes, for structure, for preservation. It's not really for a salty taste per se. But, but all of that can be reduced. Um, in terms of salty taste, you know, the human palate is amazingly um, uh, plastic. And so within just a few weeks of reducing your salt, low salt foods will taste just as salty. They'll taste just as good. And you'll actually taste more of the food. And train so your taste buds. Very quickly, yeah. yeah. So, so mm -hmm. this is really a huge problem. We're at least, I think, double where we should be. And, and this is a case where, as opposed to sugar, which I think has you know, redeeming taste qualities to add a little bit here and there, um, you know, but we're using too much of. Sodium is just being used way too much without any thought to its health consequences by the food industry. And I think government really needs to, 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 uh, to, to do something like they've done in the United Kingdom. And I think that's a great point about how you don't realize that it's not just about the taste. With sugar, at least, it's, you can taste the sugar. It's pretty clear. But um, well, ketchup. As, well, that's true. Ketchup, that's yeah. true. Ketchup isn't exactly. Um, but, you know, that it's used as a preservative and in things that you wouldn't even realize, like exactly. chicken. Like, why right. is there salt in chicken? Right. Um, anyway, okay. Uh, Amanda. Oh, yes. You know, in, in addition to the regulation of industry, which I think is going to be very important for both the sugars and salt, I think just the transparency of having it really visible in the food label, you know, the amount of sugar and percent of uh, whole grains versus refined sugar, and also front of label, front front of package labeling, because when uh, consumers are making choices among the different products on the shelf, it's so important to have something that's easily visible where mm -hmm. they can see the differences. I think that that will end up putting a lot of pressure on industry to develop, you know, foods that are lower in added sugars and and in sodium because consumers will see this so easily and, you know, they'll go with other options. It's just going to be important to have other options. If there are no options out there, it won't make it, there won't be really any pressure on industry to make these changes. And the clearer it is, like you mentioned, they can't hide behind right, these terms where they, they know they're tricking consumers. If they have to be clear about it, then they can't hide anymore. I think so. many consumers have no idea yeah. how much sugar yeah. and yeah. salt is well, in these foods. So that's the reason the, uh, the uh, newly released uh, is still being um, uh, debated uh, uh, nutrition facts panel, mm -hmm. um, uh, which now uh, is going to add the added sugar um, uh, to the uh, right. to the nutrition label. I, I think that can be very useful uh, for um, the consumers and, and parents uh, to know how much added sugar in the products and uh, make more informed decisions. Yeah. Uh, and we're actually going to have a clip about that um, mm -hmm. later on, so we'll go back to that subject. But um, next, I actually wanted to move on to supplements, um, which is uh, Joanne's expertise. Um, so we'll watch a clip, uh, which is on the draft recommendation statement on multivitamins with regard to preventing cancer yeah. and heart disease. Um, and the clip, uh, there's a couple speakers in the clip who aren't named, so I'll tell you now. It's Dr. Kirsten Bibbins-Domingo, who was a panel member of the uh, U.S. Preventive Services Task Force uh, panel, and then Douglas McKay, who's from the Council of Responsible Nutrition. So we can play that. For a third of Americans, this is a daily ritual. The reasons behind supplementation are as different as the people taking them. 
But now new research suggests if you're using them to prevent two major types of disease, you may not be getting your money's worth. If the purpose of your vitamin supplementation is to prevent heart disease and cancer, that there isn't enough evidence right now to say conclusively um, that it's effective for doing that. The new report from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force updates its 2003 findings, stating there's still not enough evidence for or against supplementation for preventing heart disease and cancer. This time, there was enough evidence for experts to say without a doubt, vitamin E and beta-carotene do not prevent these diseases. In fact, the report finds beta-carotene can increase the risk for lung cancer among smokers. This is one area where the studies are there and are clear that there are harms in this high-risk group. Representatives for the vitamin industry say many Americans rely on multivitamins, not for disease prevention but simply to make up for nutrients they don't get from their diet. A multivitamin can fill those nutrient gaps and provide us with all the essential nutrients we need. It's a really good insurance policy. Experts say patients should talk to their doctor about which supplements, if any, they should be taking. Erica Edwards, NBC News. Um, so maybe a good one to start off with is the multivitamin. Um, it, I feel like every, a lot of people take them, um, but like they, the man said in there, he was saying that it, it, it can supplement your diet, like if you're not eating enough nutrients. Um, I was wondering if you could speak to that, if that's not really true right. or... Well, um, when it comes to multivitamins, they will never be a replacement for a, health, a healthy diet, a healthful, well-balanced diet. And I don't think anyone should think of multivitamins in that way. Most people do not need multivitamins. A small percentage of the population actually may benefit for various reasons, their diets are really poorly balanced or they may have some malabsorption, need some extra fat-soluble vitamins, particularly vitamin D. Um, however, the vast majority of the population will not need to take a multivitamin. It tends to be the people who, who need it the least who, who take the multivitamin. But, um, I think that in some ways this um, notion that we know for sure that multivitamins are not helpful and don't reduce the risk of cancer, cardiovascular disease, is somewhat um, misleading because there's been only one large-scale randomized trial of the actual comprehensive multivitamin, which is at least 20 vitamins and minerals, and that's the U.S. Physicians Health Study which tested multivitamins only in men and actually found a statistically significant 8% reduction in cancer and among the men who were an older age group, 70 and older, a statistically significant 18% reduction in cancer. And that's among physicians who generally have a good, health, a more healthful diet. So the question is open. The jury is still out. In fact, we have a strong interest in looking at multivitamins, the role of multivitamins in reducing our risks of cancer and cardiovascular disease. We think it's particularly important to test multivitamins in women <clears throat> and in a more representative uh, study population. So we're actually going to be launching uh, another multivitamin trial to, uh, to look at multivitamins in a large number of women, about 12,000 women and another 6,000 men, 18,000, to look at whether in fact there is this role in uh, a representative population with usual diets, the typical US diets, older age groups though, <clears throat> 65 and older. So um, <clears throat> more research is definitely needed. Um, <clears throat> what about vitamin D and calcium? Do we know any more about that and whether that benefits people and who it benefits? Yeah, well, I think first of all, with vitamin D and calcium, more is not necessarily better. There's a perception with all of these vitamins and minerals that the more you take, you know, if a little is healthy, prevents vitamin deficiency syndrome, then, you know, just take more and it will prevent all of the chronic diseases of the 20th and 21st century. <clears throat> There's very little support for that perception. In fact, we don't know. There's so much we don't know about the balance benefits and risks of taking higher dose vitamin supplements. I think we can say that it's important to get the recommended dietary allowance and, um, and that would mean what you would get through a healthful, well-balanced diet, or maybe in those who are concerned taking a multivitamin. But what almost in every single case where mega dose of vitamin has been tested, it's been found not only 
to lack benefits, but even to have risks. So some of what was mentioned in the clip about beta carotene, high dose beta carotene being associated with increased risk of lung cancer in smokers, vitamin E in high doses has now been linked to bleeding disorders and even to an increased risk of prostate cancer. We really do not know that taking mega doses far beyond what you would get from a typical balanced diet will be of benefit. Um, and so they, they, these doses, if they're going to be very high, they certainly should be tested in randomized trials before adopted by the population on a wide scale. And in general with, with supplements, I would say consumer beware, really. It's very important to understand that um, very, very few of the supplements, the vitamin, the mineral supplements that are on the market have been well tested. And the ones that have been well tested have generally not shown that the benefits, it hasn't been shown that the benefits outweigh the risks. So you could, uh, on one hand, you could count the vitamins and minerals to consider taking beyond what you get in a multivitamin. And that would include vitamin D, calcium, especially if you have a bone health problem or if you have malabsorption or, or you don't have any dairy product or very little uh, dairy because you have lactose intolerance or, or don't like dairy products. Um, it, it certainly would be very reasonable to take a supplement of uh, vitamin D and, and calcium under those circumstances. And, and folic acid is very important in women of childbearing age and certainly um, through pregnancy and early in pregnancy because it's been uh, linked to reducing birth defects. Um, so I think that uh, the, the, the vitamins to consider the folic acid in women who are considering or uh, potentially will become pregnant and um, in, in people who take certain medications such as proton pump inhibitors, there can be reduced absorption of vitamin B12 and um, a need for some other vitamins and certainly malabsorption uh, syndrome. You would, you would definitely want to take uh, higher doses of vitamin D um, and other fat-soluble vitamins. But overall, the evidence is not yet there. That's why these large-scale randomized trials are being done to test um, these higher doses. But we don't yet have the evidence that taking mega doses of vitamin D will be helpful. And, and um, omega-3s also need to be tested. The, uh, uh, fish oil, omega-3s um, are being tested in, in several trials, but um, very few trials have been done in primary prevention. So I think we need more research, and until the point that the research clearly shows that benefits outweigh the risks, I would really caution against taking mega doses of any of the supplements on the, on the market. So fish oil is included in that. You fish that oil would be another another <laughs> supplement that, you know, certainly there are a lot of anecdotal stories about fish oil helping people. The randomized trials initially showed some benefit in those who have um, heart disease, but the more recent trials of fish oil in people with heart disease are not showing benefits. That may be, be because all of the medications that are taken, like aspirins and statins, are masking the, the benefits through similar pathways mm -hmm. of the omega-3s, but there hasn't yet been a large-scale randomized trial completed of the omega-3s, the, the um, marine omega-3s, long-chain omega-3s, in preventing or lowering risk of um, heart disease in healthy population. We're, we're doing that in the vitamin D and omega-3 trial, but that, that trial is in progress and the results are not available. Okay, so you'd say that because there's so much we don't know, the best way to get Buyer it is beware. just- Buyer beware, buyer beware. Nutrition, good nutrition. A healthy diet, no. try to get as much as you possibly can and work with your clinician um, to see if you might need or benefit from a higher dose of an individual vitamin or um, mineral other supplement. Can I chime in? Definitely. This, uh, so for vulnerable populations, as mm -hmm. you said, for pregnant women, yep. for uh, children mm -hmm. and the elderly, and also for vegetarians who mm -hmm. don't eat um, uh, animal products, I think uh, vitamin supplementations uh, is a, a, a important consideration. With the help of the clinician, I mean, there there is a recommendation for um, infants and children, you know, to take some uh, vitamin D, but generally supplementation isn't really recommended across the board. Um, in 
in any of, of these groups, except pregnant women definitely need adequate folic acid, no question about that. And you wanna be sure of for, in terms of working with a pediatrician about what you know to do about vitamin D, make sure to get input from the pediatrician about whether to use you know, vitamin D so uh, supplementation. So just make sure you're talking to your doctor about what you're doing. And older yeah. people, I think, really may benefit from a multivitamin, but the jury is still out. Certainly the physician's health study suggests there may be some benefit, uh, some role of the multivitamin in the older population. There was no benefit seen in um, the mid younger and midlife men, but we need additional trials. We need trials in women that include women, and we need additional research in more general populations. Great. And I would just add, I think that, you know, again, eating healthy foods as a, as a major food source is the most important thing. Yeah. But if one were going to take one thing, I think that fish oil has the strongest evidence. There's at least four trials, <laughs> have, at least four trials have shown benefits in contrast to any other. Yeah, but so many vitamin. have it shown benefit. And many observational studies have shown benefit. And in mm -hmm. contrast to some of the other trials where high doses have harms, there's really no convincing signal of any harms for fish oil. So I think that, you know, diet is still the first choice. But if someone wanted to be sure they were getting enough omega-3s or didn't eat fish, I think taking a fish oil you know, supplement would be very reasonable. If, yeah. you, if you really never eat, eat fish and you, you don't get alpha-linolytic, you know, if you, if you don't have flaxseed, or mm -hmm. even though there may be some greater benefits of the marine omega-3s and, and long chain. But unfortunately, the recent randomized trials and the meta-analyses of many, many randomized trials of omega-3s, fish oil, and cardiovascular disease have been disappointing recently. And, and it's probably because of the medications interfering with the ability to see a benefit. I think we could talk for another five hours <laughs> about fish yeah. oil, but um, the, <clears throat> not to cut this conversation short, but just to change directions in, into a more solution-minded um, focus. Um, we're gonna open up to the solutions part of the discussion and we're gonna play a clip on the new nutrition labels that we were talking about earlier. The Obama administration wants shopping for healthy food to be faster and easier and says nutrition information needs to be clear. Too often it's nearly impossible to get the most basic facts about the food we buy for our families. First Lady Michelle Obama today announced proposed changes to the nutrition facts panel seen on nearly every food, long thought to be too confusing for hurried shoppers. You squinted at that little tiny label and you were totally and utterly lost. <laughs> Key changes would include calories printed in larger, bolder type. For the first time, a line indicating added sugars, differentiating them from healthier natural sugars, and updated more realistic serving sizes to reflect the way people actually eat. A lot of people, you know, get a bag of potato chips and they eat the whole bag, but if you look at the serving sizes, it says, well, there's two servings in the bag, and they weren't really understanding that. So now you can get the calories per serving or what it would be if you ate the entire bag. The current facts panel is 20 years old. In that time, new research shifted the focus from fats to calories and added sugar. One of the reasons there's such a high obesity and diabetes rate in this country is we're having elevated insulin levels from eating too much sugar. Food companies have resisted some changes before, but an industry group called the proposal a thoughtful review it hopes will inform and not confuse consumers. The new labels are likely several years off. The FDA must finalize them and give industry time to change, which could cost an estimated $2 billion. Cindy Sharp, Associated Press. Um, so we talked about the added sugar element of that a little bit before, but um, Dariush, I actually wanted to know what you thought about how added sugars are represented, um, and if you think that that's like a really accurate way of helping us understand how much sugar we're consuming. Yeah, well, well you know, we, we've done research and are doing research on sort of the impact of labels in general. And so I think the, the big question is whether any of this is worthwhile at all um, and whether it's all misleading and, and confusing. And I think it's obvious the industry is going to support this because I think practically there's very little useful information on a, on a nutrient label, in, in my opinion. And I think that a lot of these emphases are actually going down the wrong path. And so I think the emphasis on calories actually sounds like a good idea, but it's actually a terrible idea because mm -hmm. we should be eating more calories from some things to reduce risk of weight gain, and we should be eating less calories from something else. And so if you just have the calories in big, bold numbers, a serving of nuts is 165 calories, a serving of soda is 120 calories, you'll choose the soda. So, mm -hmm. so you know, 
30 years ago, we focused on fat because we wanted to lower cholesterol. And lowering fat you know, doesn't lower heart disease. And now, to lower obesity, we're focusing on lowering calories. That's not the answer. We need to be eating healthier calories. So a calorie focus is incorrect. And, and in general, actually, there's lots of evidence that people read the label and say it, it's interesting to them. But if you test it in trials, it doesn't change behavior. So, mm -hmm. so industry is going to support this because it's just a Band-Aid fix. And it lets industry do whatever they want and sell whatever they want as, a, as, a, as an alternative to a strong government policy mm -hmm. to actually change what's in the food. So, so I think that there are some good things here. You know, maybe standardizing the serving sizes is a good idea. Right, but I think right. putting added sugars on the label is, is silly. Focusing on calories as a single thing is silly. There's only a few useful items. Sodium is actually <coughs> silly. Sodium is terrible. There's too much sodium in the diet. But a lot of ways companies lower sodium is by lowering portion sizes. Subway does this. Mm -hmm. So Subway, the average sandwich has over 1,000 milligrams of sodium. They have their healthy options, which are have American Heart Association heart check on it. They've just lowered the portion size, lowered the calories. So of course it has lower sodium and has lower 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 calories. So mm -hmm. so so I think that there's all sorts of confusing things on the label, and this sort of band-aid fix is sort of a, an excuse for actual strong policy. And I think we really need strong policy. Joanne, I agree. It's not the magic bullet, but. I think that it is very important to provide consumers with this information, the public with this information, and many people will make use of this. But the back of the package labeling won't be enough. I think it really has to be much more prominent and it has to be helpful to the consumers when they are making choices among options. But I agree with Dari that we really need to have more emphasis some other areas. Most importantly, making it clear, almost educating the public and even clinicians getting involved in talking with patients um, about diet. What, what is a healthful diet? More focus on the foods that should be eaten and that people will benefit from. You know, the fruits and vegetables, the whole grain, the fish, you know, some of these, um, having a snack of fruit, you know, kids really love, if they start early on having fruit for a snack, you know, apples, pears, peaches, and, and strawberries, they love that. My kids loved berries and strawberries and, and peaches. You know, these, these foods could definitely be replacing the junk that so often is given to kids as treats. So it's so important just, you know, I think that really the public should vote with their feet and not buy these products, you know, that are just absolutely loaded with um, sugar and salt and focus more from a very early age on the healthful foods, particularly, you know, fruits and vegetables, nuts. I completely agree. I mean, a snack of nuts and a kid who's not allergic, kids love nuts if they're introduced to it early on. You know, they don't have to be given cookies and pastries that because that is what feeds the addiction to sugar and the salt that lasts a lifetime. And so, you know, then you have the obesity developing in the children and it, it tracks throughout adulthood. So I think we need to start early. And I, I really wish clinicians would get more involved in um, educating, you know, patients about uh, what's a healthy diet and, and giving them the options. Instead of this, choose this. That is so helpful, handouts in the clinic that, that give people ideas about what they can do to make choices alternatives that are much healthier and much better than, and, and often taste much better too. We have to educate the clinicians first before we can educate them. <laughs> right, yeah. this, is a big, this is a big problem. Going, going back to the, um, uh, the proposed nutrition uh, facts uh, label, I, I think it's an improvement. I mean, it, it, it's not perfect yet, uh, but I think it's very important uh, to highlight the, the portion size and the number of calories mm -hmm. and um, the, uh, the amount of added sugar. I, I think uh, the added sugar uh, is something is relatively easy, simple target compared to uh, this refined starch, uh, which is, I mean, everywhere uh, in, in our stable foods, bagels, uh, potatoes, and bread, and so on and so forth. So we know that added sugars, especially sugary beverages, um, uh, do not provide any nutrition benefits. Those are pure empty calories. Mm -hmm. So I think it's very important for us to target um, added sugars. Was on one of the um, strategies, I mean, we have to look at the overall picture, not just one mm -hmm. single nutrient or, or, or element of our, our diet. But um, based on the science and, and also 
based on the fact that those uh, empty calories, I think, added sugars, is especially sugary beverages, are uh, a uh, very important target uh, in terms of public health interventions. Uh, what do you think about policies like in New York City, the, the soda, you know, no more big sodas, or in California, there's proposed warning labels that they're going to put on soda. Um, what do you think about more, you know, like sort of interventions um, where it's looking at it as a negative, casting it in a negative light versus promoting the positive options? Do those work? <laughs> well, I, I think this, uh, uh, again, th there is no magic bullet. I think all the steps uh -huh. can be uh, mm -hmm. incremental, can be useful in terms of, first of all, increasing the awareness mm -hmm. about, I mean, this is uh, this major public health problem. And secondly, the um, consumers and parents can make more informed decisions based on uh, the information, for mm -hmm. example, the warning labels on, mm -hmm. on soda cans. And uh, restricting uh, access to large portion size of soda, I think, is, is a good idea because we know that there is a strong correlation between large portion size and uh, the, the amount of consumption. Mm -hmm. So it's not going to solve all the problems, but I think those are all important. Yeah, Got right. So, okay. so, you know, a, a major emphasis of, of our research group is, is evaluating policies and how effective they are. And, mm -hmm. you know, this is an area where Joanne mentioned it's so important to test the vitamins in trials. The policies also need to be tested. And many of these policies have been tested. And mm -hmm. amazingly, the policies that work the, the least are the ones that we're implementing the most. And so um, education, just knowledge alone, many, many studies have shown that just knowledge alone is not very effective. And so mm -hmm. warning labels, food labels, you know, all these things, is not very effective. They have and to so, be tested and, and more. They have to be tested. Yeah, and it also has yeah. to be but in, in the context. Like, right. But the evidence that's been done, the trials that have been done, natural experiments trials, have all shown very small to, to, to zero effects. Wow. The things that work, actually, the things that work are the things that are politically challenged to do. But changing prices clearly works. And so I think that Mexico has just passed an 8% sugar sweet beverage tax and a national junk food tax. Mm -hmm. um, I think that something like that in the United States should be done and should be coupled, though, with a subsidy on healthy yeah, foods so it's not regressive and not penalizing. So you tax you know, less healthy, highly processed foods and, and subsidize healthier foods. We actually could do that right now without much, much work by mm -hmm. changing the SNAP program. So the food stamp program or the SNAP program serves 40 million Americans. And uh, that, those tax dollars every day are buying 60 million servings of sugar-sweetened beverages. Every day are being bought by SNAP. So we need to change the SNAP program so that we're not allowing a subsidy program that's supposed to be providing nutritious foods to people to let them to buy you know, anything. And it's actually disproportionately the lower-income population in the United States that's, that's um, consuming the worst food. So, okay. so I think there's lots of things to do that are much stronger than the policies that we're, we're doing now. And it just requires somebody out there with political will and political capital to, to really take a stand um, and, and face up to food industry. I think Got we should it. do all of these yeah. things, but some of these things take some time. In the meantime, just providing information to the public, I think will help but for people who are actually hoping to be in control of these decisions. Having that information will really help them to make the right choices. And I definitely agree with also moving in the direction of public policy changes and you know, the subsidies for these really unhealthy foods. I mean, this makes no sense. You know, and so I definitely agree with rethinking that. But those policy changes are so complex, and they're, it's so difficult to actually affect those changes. I mean, it would be wonderful if it could be done, you know, in the next few weeks. But the likelihood that's going to happen, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, okay, so uh, I'd like to take some questions. Um, if you, if there's any questions from our online audience, we can start there, and then we'll ask our studio. Yes, I just, um, we're, we're popping with questions online. So I, I'm just going to try to ask some of them that where we're getting a lot of responses that are along the same lines. Um, here's the first one. In many communities, there is a shortage of choice of right foods. I live, as many of my family and friends do, in middle-class neighborhoods that have big supermarkets. The problem is that natural foods are almost two times the cost. In addition, I find that organic or natural foods have high sodium. What is the answer to these issues? And what happens in poor neighborhoods that do not have big supermarkets available? Well, that's a key question. Yeah, so, so, so we, we've, we've, we've studied the, both of these issues uh, with, our, with our research. And so in terms of cost, actually, this is a little bit of a um, misperception that healthier foods cost more. We actually did a meta-analysis of all the world, world's evidence on price of foods versus healthfulness. And certainly, if you go into a restaurant, 
and you're trying to purchase pre-prepared food, healthier choices often cost more. But if you're making your own food, actually, there's pretty small price differences. And so it's on average about $1.50 per day price difference between the healthiest versus the least healthy foods. And so that's not a huge price difference for many Americans, although, again, for the poorest you know, 25 or 30 percent, that is a big price yeah. difference. So, so it's, it's cost more, but not that much more. It's not $10 more a day. Um, it should cost less. It should cost less, absolutely. <laughs> it really should. It should. And, and then, and, you know, should be in there. terms of the health costs associated with it, it costs much more, obviously. You know, this, this issue of the built environment, sort of food deserts and all this, this is also something we, we reviewed. And actually, the evidence is remarkably weak that that strongly influences dietary intake. It sort of makes sense that it would. But most of the data to date, actually, are just sort of cross-sectional studies. There's never been any interventions or any, even any uh, observational studies that, that where we look at changes over time. So it's actually still pretty, pretty weak data. Certainly for fast food restaurants, convenience stores, Walmarts, things like that, the evidence is actually very conflicting that those influence diet at all. Supermarkets, the evidence is a little bit more straightforward and more positive that if you have a supermarket around, you tend to have a healthier diet, but it's all observational. It's all what we call cross-sectional, which means it could just be that those supermarkets are going there because that's, that's the food people buy. So, so we need more actually study about how the food environment changes, changes choice. I do think it's probably going to turn out to be important, but it's been remarkably understudied. Yeah. We, we need Thank more you. Research. Thank yeah. you. I think I'll just take the opportunity to ask one more question from uh, the live chat. There's a lot of activity about vitamin D and questions about that. So, Joanne, might you just elaborate more on who needs it and how best to get it? Oh, everyone needs vitamin D. <laughs> no question about that. So, there's a recommended dietary allowance, the Institute of Medicine's most Not recent supplements, vitamin D. Vi Oh, okay, everyone needs <laughs> vitamin D. Let me just start with that. So this there's no, the no question yeah. about that. And the Institute of Medicine's guidelines most recently in 2011 were that up adults up to age um, 70 need 600 IUs a day and, seven, and above age 70, 800 IUs a day. Now that probably is going to seem like very, very little, but the evidence is quite strong that for bone health, that's all it takes in order to maintain bone health together with calcium, the recommended uh, intakes of 1,000 to 1,200 milligrams. And the jury is still out, believe it or not, whether going higher than that will confer greater benefits. So we're doing, we're testing 2,000 IUs a day of vitamin D for prevention of cancer and cardiovascular disease, for lowering risk of those outcomes. But the, the answers are not yet available, whether you get greater benefits. As far as who, who needs to take a vitamin supplement, most people, if, especially if they can um, eat dairy products, they can get up to that 600 IUs through, um, through nutritional sources alone. Um, however, certainly older individuals would have trouble getting to their RDA of 800, and it would be very reasonable, but even a multivitamin together with what's in a typical diet would get you up to 800. However, I do think it's reasonable to take supplements 1,000 to 2,000. If you have bone health problems, you know, if you've had a fracture, you've been diagnosed with osteoporosis, Older individuals who do not get sun exposure, if they're institutionalized or they're unable to you know, be out and, and exposed to the sun. And then there's a lot of controversy about skin pigmentation and whether just an, an in general, um, people with deeper skin pigmentation because there's less synthesis of vitamin D in the skin, whether they should routinely take um, vitamin D supplements. The, the answer is not yet available to that question. The Institute of Medicine did not think that that was an appropriate recommendation routinely for all people with deeply pigmented skin to take a vitamin supplementation, the vitamin D supplements. And in fact, some recent evidence suggests that the bioavailable amount of vitamin D, for example, in African Americans is just as high as in whites, and bone health is actually superior in African Americans compared to whites. So that's always been a paradox. Why is it that African Americans have better bone mineral density, lower risks of fracture? Well, a recent study suggests that there may be a gene variant 
that leads to a decreased level of a binding protein. And so the usual way vitamin D is measured, it may be misleading in terms of vitamin D levels. But if you look at the bioavailable or the free vitamin D level, there may not be these differences by race, ethnicity. So there are a lot of unanswered questions. In general, I would say if you have any concerns, if you're in any vulnerable group such as having um, bone health problems or, or you're not getting sun exposure, uh, certainly taking 1,000 to 2,000 IUs a day would be very reasonable, but avoid taking mega doses. Uh, going above 4,000 was really recommended against by the Institute of Medicine, above 4,000 IUs per day. Thank you, and I know our in-studio audience has questions as well, but because we have so much activity online, I'm just gonna ask one more. There are a lot of questions coming in about sugar substitutes, um, and so here's one that's representative of that. I'd love to see your panel of experts address the new versions of sugars on the market, including Splenda, and the use of sugar alcohols that are being used in frozen desserts in place of refined sugar. Are there solid clinical studies that show these synthetic sugar substitutes have no long-term adverse effects? Okay, that's <laughs> a loaded question. <laughs> uh, so we have to uh, distinguish artificial sweeteners like Splenda from sugar alcohols. And so um, for artificial sweetened beverages or, or diet soda, uh, the evidence is not as clear as that for sugary beverages. Uh, there are a lot of studies on diet soda and body weight and various health outcomes. Some studies showed benefits of diet soda on body weight, others sh didn't show any benefits. And uh, in recent studies, uh, there is suggestion of a positive relationship between diet soda consumption and uh, uh, weight gain. So that's kind of uh, very uh, troubling uh, if this is true. Uh, however, the problem with this kind of study is that um, um, people who are overweight and obese tend to switch from regular soda to, to diet soda. So it's possible that uh, uh, it's being w overweight need to increase diet soda consumption rather than the other way around. And this is still being debated and a lot of study uh, being conducted to test uh, the effects of uh, diet soda on body weight and, and other metabolic conditions. Um, in terms of um, uh, um, uh, substituting for regular soda, uh, clearly uh, diet soda is not the optimal uh, replacement uh, because of the uncertainties about the long-term effects, especially for children. And um, uh, for um, uh, the, the other question is, uh, uh, question is about sugar alcohol. Uh, it's not alcohol, <laughs> it's not a sugar either. Yes. It's a, it's a natural uh, compound in um, plant-based foods, like fruits and vegetables. Uh, sugar alcohol has lower amount of calories uh, compared to regular sugar. So it has about 0.5 to uh, 3 calories per, per gram. So it has been widely used uh, as a sweetener uh, in, in, um, in various foods. However, too much consumption of uh, sugar alcohol may cause uh, some GI problems such as diarrhea. Um, the health, the long-term health effects of sugar alcohol consumption still uh, haven't been uh, studied. And I, I think this is uh, going to be a very interesting area uh, to look at in terms of uh, body weight control and hormonal regulations and, and so on and so forth. Can I just comment a brief, a brief comment on artificial sweeteners? So I think that, um, you know, if you're drinking a lot of sugar sweetened beverages or using, you know, sugar now, it's definitely healthier to switch to artificial sweeteners. I think that's clear. If you're, if it's better to drink Diet Coke versus regular Coke, it's better to use artificial sweeteners versus regular sweeteners if you're using a lot. Um, so I think if a person is trying to get off the sugars, it's a great bridge to getting off the sugars. But we shouldn't think of it as harmless. I think that's the key point because it changes a person's perceptions of taste, it may change their overall hunger, you know, especially in children, as Frank mentioned, you know, a carrot is sweet, actually, but a carrot may no longer taste sweet after you've had a lot of artificial sweeteners. So I think that it's definitely a good bridge to getting off of the, of the regular sweeteners and, and sugary beverages, but, but we shouldn't think of it as harmless in the population because it hasn't been studied uh, well enough. Yeah. Thank you. Um, are there any questions from our studio? Yes? Um, if we if we follow all of your recommendations, what's the likely increase in my life expectancy? 
<laughs> well, we, we've studied this for just omega-3s, actually, and so comparing people with the highest levels of omega-3s from the diet, not from supplements, versus the lowest, we actually saw an average of about 2.2 years of higher life expectancy just from no omega-3s versus high omega-3s. Um, you know, that's one study, but that's, I think, one estimate. But I think other estimates, if you put all of the healthy diet together, you know, I would say that it's probably six or to eight years of, of longer life expectancy. Now, the more important question is your quality of life yeah. will be much, much, much greater throughout your life in terms of reduced risk of obesity, diabetes, heart disease, cancers, and all the disability uh, and, and, you know, diseases that come with that. So I think that, you know, people will live a much healthier life, they'll sleep better, um, you know, you'll have less depression, people's uh, thinking is clear when, when we eat healthier diets. We, we recently published an analysis that, that poor diet has become the number one cause of death and disability in the United States, exceeding smoking by, by quite considerable margin. And some of that's because smoking's come down, so that's good. But now poor diet is the single leading cause of poor, poor, health, uh, poor health. So if you want to improve your health, diet is the place to start. And I think in eating healthier foods rather than focusing on avoid, avoid, avoid. Eating healthier foods, fruits, vegetables, nuts, fish, vegetable oils, whole grains, uh, and some dairy is, is the, way to, the way to go. I agree. I think that these lifestyle factors also cluster together. And I think that if you have a healthy diet, you may have more energy and you may be more likely to exercise. And, and so often the type of diet that you have when you're sitting on a couch just watching TV and, and eating snacks, you know, will lead to so many, so many risk factors clustering together. So I think that um, it's, it's important to consider all of these lifestyle factors. And what we notice in almost every observational study we've ever looked at, that the people who have the healthy diets also exercise more and they have a generally more health conscious lifestyle. And whether that means that it's you know, just one of those factors that's important to good health and the others are just you know, tagging along, or whether there's some motivation you get by having a healthful diet and more energy and just feeling like you're really doing something for your health and you also want to you know, be physically active. It isn't entirely clear, but these factors tend to cluster together and they are certainly linked to much longer lifespans in the observational studies. So to give you uh, uh, exact numbers, uh, the combination of healthy diet uh, not smoking, regular exercise, moderate alcohol consumption, reduce risk of type 2 diabetes by 90%, 90%, and uh, heart disease, and heart disease uh, by 80%, 80, colon cancer by 60 to 70%, and reduce premature mortality by more than 50%. Wow. So uh, this is much stronger than any uh, medications or supplements. But, but, but also it hasn't been tested in a randomized trial <laughs> and, and it was, But I, I think uh, you have to enjoy the diet. I, I, I mean, I, I don't think it's a good idea to <laughs> cut out all the sugars and all the sweeteners. And uh, you, you have to, I mean, enjoy the, the pleasure of, um, of eating, right? <laughs> so we, we don't want to kind of right. demonize <laughs> the sugar uh, in, in our diet. I, I think the moderation. main issue is that it's overconsumption at this point, including sugar and, yeah. and, and sodium. And underconsumption of good things. Right. <laughs> yes. I mean, really, it's so important also mm -hmm. to, to emphasize what people would benefit from eating because so mm -hmm. often trying to prescribe intake of various food, it just doesn't work. Yeah, unless they, unless like there's it. a substitute. I mean, right. people have to replace it with something. You gotta eat. <laughs> um, I think we have room for, or time for one more question. Um, we can take one more. Did someone have their hand up? Yeah. Hi, so um, in light of all your discussions, um, what is one thing that each of you would pick that you think the government needs to take action on right now to improve the health of Americans, given the discussion you've had about sugar, salt, and supplements? What's one thing the government should definitely do? Only one. That's hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's kind of hard. But, I mean, I, I like the idea of transparency. Um, I, I really, you know, I like the idea of giving information to the public and people who like to make use of information to guide their choices and their decisions in, in buying products, they have that option. But, but I certainly would like to see you know, some pressure on uh, industry to reduce the amount of sugar and salt they're putting in products because it is very difficult for consumers to even have the choices to you know, choose um, more, more healthful foods. 
So uh, I think that you know the one thing that would be the best thing is to tax you know unhealthful processed foods and subsidize um, you know healthy minimally processed foods. I think that's not practical for political reasons for a while. So that's my number one choice. But in terms of practical things, I think that changing the the, the food stamp program, changing SNAP, to have just the same restrictions as WIC, the women's and infants uh, uh, program. They just change that. That would be transformative for 40 million Americans and all the Americans that live in their neighborhoods. So I think that would be a, a, a quick, simple step. Uh, and then you only gave me one, but I think restricting sodium would be really easy too. And, and the CDC is actually moving toward that. So I think sodium is a natural target, easy to reduce. Um, you know, from by regulation, it should be done. I guess for selfish reasons, I want the government to invest more money on nutrition research. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, right now, the, the government invests in millions, millions of dollars on, on drugs. But uh, as we just said, I mean, nutrition has such uh, great potential to prevent uh, chronic disease, reduce health care costs. But we don't have enough money to do original research and don't have enough money to translate, to translate uh, the scientific evidence into public health practice and, and policies. I, I think this is a really important area for the government to invest. More NIH funding. <laughs> right. I hope they're watching. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, well, with that, um, our forum has come to an end, but I would encourage everyone to log on to forumhsph.org um, and you can continue the conversation there. Uh, and also, Ariana Huffington will be at the forum um, on April 9th and she'll be discussing her new book, Thrive. So um, thank you all for coming. This has been a production of The Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing The Forum.